Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me? Okay. It's been a few weeks since I've been up here. It's good to be back. My name's Tim. I'm uh, one of the pastors up here. We were, we were gone for a week to our national conference out in California where we got to uh, gather with the Bigger Vineyard family, uh, 3,500 of my closest friends, and uh, we really had a great time out there, and it was really wonderful to see that the group of churches that we're a part of is doing so well, and uh, you know, we had 900 teenagers at our conference, 900 teenagers who say, you know what, I want to think about planting a church, I want to think about when I get out of high school, when I get out of college, I want to plant a church, and I want to get in this thing and give my life for something that means something, and so uh, I was really excited, and then uh, I, I also want to say this, thank you to Chris and Doug who preached here and did a wonderful job, and you know, it's nice to be able to take a break, leave town, and, and leave it in good hands. And the staff did a wonderful job, so thank you. And then we had, uh, you know, our anniversary was week before last. And, uh, yep, 42 years with... Uh, yes, go Karen, that's exactly right. <laughs> it seems like 50 for her, but oh, only like 10 for me, yes. fine. <laughs> Uh, we slipped off for a few days. You know, when, when I was at the conference, like I said, it's good to know that you're a part of a group, that uh, you're not alone in this thing. And even God, over in uh, Genesis, the very first part of this book, yeah, when he starts talking about how wonderful it was when he made the earth, the skies, you guys remember the story? What did he say after he created every little part of it? It was good. I mean, it was, it was good. It was good. It was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that he made it. It was very good. And then he gets over into the second chapter, and in the 18th verse, he says this. What? It is not good. What wasn't good after all of that good? That people that that mankind does life alone that wasn't a good thing now of course out of this comes our christian picture of marriage man and a woman and and uh that they but that's not the only thing that god has uh, provided as far as us not being alone because that would exclude so many people that weren't married how about the widows and the widowers and the singles and different people like that how about them it's not good for anyone to be alone and so in Christ, when Christ came, he created this thing called the church. And the church is good. As a matter of fact, it's very good. God created the church. Jesus says that it's his church. And so um, today I'm starting a new series for the next uh, few weeks as we move toward that third service where uh, we take a look at the church. Now, I know just like anyone else in here, that there are probably 
there, some of you guys are thinking, well, the church just really hasn't done that great of a job, and maybe that's true. I, I, you look down through history the last 2,000 years, and you see things like, you know, the witch hunters, and you see that, uh, you know, the child abuse, uh, the priests sexually abusing children. You see a lot of things that should never have happened. And some people look at the church or would look at a pastor or someone and say, well, what about that? That doesn't look like that's a very good thing. There's local churches, there's churches, there's groups. And why does that happen, Tim? Why does that happen in the church? Well, that's because the church is full of sinners. And, uh, but I have a question for you. Do the atheists do a better job at showing love than the church has through the past 2,000 years? Do the agnostics do a better job at showing love for their fellow human beings? I mean, did Stalin do a better job? Did Mao Zedong do a better job? Did Lenin do a better job? The communists and the socialists, the despots that have murdered millions and millions of people and who did not care a bit about whether they fed the poor, took care of the poor, they have not done a good job at this. So they're sinners in all of these groups. But God's group, Jesus' church, he has a plan for the church. And uh, recently I heard another pastor mention Dr. Martin Luther King in one of his uh, sermons uh, to his church. And he was talking to them about the bus boycott that was going on at that time and how they had won that particular challenge of being able to ride the buses and all. And uh, Dr. King said this to his church. This was his plea to his church, and I thought it was just a beautiful statement of any pastor's heart for their church. And he said this, The end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. What a description of the local church. The beloved community. Dr. King wanted that for his church. That's what I want for this church, is for us to become even more. I think we are the beloved community, but I want us to become even more the beloved community. So part of those moves are we're going to do a third service coming up here in a few weeks. And we're changing things up structurally around here. So there's a lot of change going on. I believe the local church is worth this effort. And uh, at the end of the service, we are going to ask you to fill that card out. I, uh, when we were out in California, we went to dinner one evening with uh, one of the missionaries that, that we support here, Dr. Linus Morris. Some of you guys know Linus. And he had his son-in-law, Phil, with him. And Phil travels the world uh, where they go and... Phil began to tell me a story of a man, uh, Ronaldo, a Brazilian. And uh, they go down every few months and they train pastors. And uh, Ronaldo is always bringing anywhere from 30 to 50 new young pastors with him every time he comes to the training. And then Phil began to tell me a story about this Ronaldo. And I got an email from him. And I, I don't want to exaggerate. I'm, you know, that's, that's something we don't need to do when the kingdom comes. Things can be verified. We don't have to evangelistically speak. You know, we don't have to embellish things. If it's true, it's true. And so uh, since yesterday, Phil has been sending me these emails from, from Rinaldo. And Rinaldo, the Lord touched his heart. 
And church planning touched his heart. The local church and the importance of the local church touched his heart. And so he went out into uh, these areas of Brazil and around and started to plant churches. And he had planted one church and then moved on to the next village to plant another church. That one church that he planted planted six more churches, local churches. So as as Ronaldo was moving from one village to the next, this happened to him. I'm going to read it straight from him, okay? And so I've had it in Portuguese. I've had it, someone trying to interpret it in Portuguese. And now I've got it with someone who supposedly does know Portuguese. Anybody speak Portuguese in here, by the way? Fantastic. Now I can show you his testimony in his own words. But here, hi, Phil. You can use my testimony as follows. Because I don't have time, I will briefly describe it in Portuguese. I was, if not first, one among the first Christians in my town, Teutonia. It was very difficult to preach the gospel. There was a lot of persecution, so we would take food to the needy and use the opportunity to preach. It was about a year that I was taking food to this guy, a sick man who lived in the countryside and had lost his wife and had three young children. On a Sunday morning, I went to get him to go to a retreat. He received me very agitated and improperly dressed. He asked me to enter and sit in the chair that he had prepared and was stationed between the stove and the fridge. I told him I was going to wait in the car, but he almost forced me to sit in that chair. Because I insisted in staying in my car, he took a knife, and he sent me a picture, by the way. I won't show you that. And stabbed me in my thorax right in the direction of the heart. The knife went in 14 centimeters and perforated my lung. He then stabbed my belly, cutting two ribs, liver, and peritoneum. I'm not sure what that is, but... Uh, At this time, my strength disappeared. I managed to run outside the house, and he followed me. He got to me and started to stab me. I was defending myself, using my hands and arms, and they were cut all over. At that point, I fell to the ground. He went away, but in a few minutes was back with a pickaxe. Picture attached. (laughs) I stood up and started to run. I ran about 300 meters before he caught up to me. I was bleeding a lot through all the cuts because large veins were cut. When he reached me, he stabbed me in my back. I fell down to the ground again, and he started to hit me with the pickaxe. I saw on the side of the road a high creek, and I thought that if I threw myself down there, he would not follow me. So I did. I rolled down the hill. When I got to the bottom, to my surprise, he was already there. He started to hit all my body with the pickaxe. While he was hitting me, he was saying, You will not take away the images of this place. I managed to hold the pickaxe with my legs, so he started to throw round rocks on me, especially on my head. At that moment, the Holy Spirit told me, that he would only stop when he saw me dead. So I breathed deeply as if it was my last breath and stayed still, like a dead man looking through my semi-closed eyes. So he took the pickaxe and with all his strength hit me. My leg raised and my lower leg was cut completely open. I played dead again. He left me there and went away. I heard that he hanged himself right after doing that to me. I had to fend for myself because nobody would find me in the next hours because of my location. In short, I had 13 deep perforations, 130 external stitches, and the first stab entered between my heart and aorta, exactly one centimeter from each. I would not survive if it was one centimeter. Either way, there was no... I can't make that word out. But this guy did it all very conscious and was not under the influence of any drug, but he was heavily influenced by the devil himself. Years went by... And lots of churches were planted in this city and throughout Brazil. As of today, Teutonia is one of the most evangelized cities in the state of Rio Grande do Sul. Now, if I was planting a church, which we've planted a few, 
and I left the first church I planted and some dude did that to me, would it not make you want to rethink your calling? (laughs) But you know what? The local church was so important to Rinaldo that since that time he has planted 200 churches. So today we're going to talk about God's beloved community, the local church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we lift up Reynaldo to you right now. We know he is there doing the work, bringing 20, 30, 40, 50 pastors at a time to training, continuing as he visited his call and the importance of the local church. We pray for him that you sustain him. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you here this morning to this local church, the Vineyard in Myrtle Beach, a church you love, a church that is on your heart, a church that you birthed, and a church that you want to do great things through and in. And so, Holy Spirit, come teach, put power on your word this morning. And Jesus, we love you. We thank you for inviting us into this great adventure. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, you turn over to Romans, the 12th chapter. We'll read a few verses here. Uh, Romans 12, verse 3 through 8. Romans 12, 3 through 8. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. That means work hard. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Now, Paul's writing this letter to a group of Christians, obviously, in Rome. And Paul, I guess he's... He's been at this for about 25, 27 years now. He's planted churches all over the Mediterranean. Been on three different missions trips. And right now, as he writes this letter, he is sitting in the city of Corinth, where we get 1st and 2nd Corinthians from. And he's got a little lull in ministry. I mean, he's been working hard for 25 years. He's been planting churches, raising up leaders, and uh, seeing the kingdom advance. And now he's got a little time, a little respite, kind of like we got for a few days and able to break away and to think about what's the next stage of life? Where do I go from here? What do we do with what we have? And so Paul is thinking in the future, and Paul wants to make it to Spain. That's his, that's his desire. He hasn't gone to Spain yet to preach the gospel and to plant churches, so he wants to get there. So his whole uh, focus here in the book of Romans and his trip basically is to go from Corinth over to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he wants to take an offering to give to the church there from the Gentiles because... People know, you, you guys know what a Gentile is? That's what probably 99% of us in here are. You know, if you're Jewish, you're not a Gentile. But if, you know, a Gentile is a non-Jewish person. And so as the kingdom has been birthed, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, have flooded into the church. 
Paul's heart is that the Jewish Christians understand that the Gentiles love them and care for them. So he's taken up an offering from the Gentiles in the area to take to the Jerusalem church to bless them. So he, goes, he wants to go from Corinth to Jerusalem, deliver the offering, and then on his way to Spain, he wants to go by Rome and get some support, financial and spiritual support from the Roman Christians there uh, to make it on into Spain. You know, Paul always wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to preach the gospel in Rome. It was the headquarters where the government was located and on. So he wanted to make his way there to the epicenter of power and preach the good news. And so that was his intent. In the church at Rome, it was at this point in time, predominantly a Gentile congregation. Because if you go back to Acts 2, you read that there were a lot of people from Rome that were there when the Holy Spirit was poured out. So these Roman... Christians have gone back to Rome. They've experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They've seen the power of God. And now the church has begun to grow and, and to flourish. And Paul wants to make his way there to bless them and to bring them along. Paul loves, he loves the local church. In these scriptures, I want to point out just four things this morning. And you've got to fill in in your handout if you want to track along in a pen. And your first, first one is this. When we talk about the beloved community we see that it exists by the grace of God. It is the grace of God. And Paul is, speaks of the grace of God over and over and over again when he speaks to these churches uh, in the epistles. Uh, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, wouldn't it be great if everything that poured out of our mouth was motivated by the grace that we have received? That everything that is said from our own lips was seasoned with the salt of the grace of God before it came out. Wouldn't that be something? That that would be a a wonderful way to live life. The grace of God. The local church exists by the grace of God. And Paul is reminding this church that indeed it's the grace. It's the grace that's been poured out in his life over these past 25 or so years that he is speaking to them now. Many times you see in his greetings, as Paul wrote his books, grace and peace to you from God and our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. For the grace given me, I say to you. As a church vineyard, speaking to to you guys that are a part of this church or considering to be a part, what do we have to say as a church by the grace of God? What do we have to say as a local church by the grace of God? When you look at your life, what has the grace of God done in your life? Because what he has done is what you have to speak. Sometimes we think we have nothing to share. We have nothing of importance or value that could possibly help someone. Look at your life. Has the grace of God had any impact in your life at all? It is by that grace that you speak grace to others. And I believe local assemblies and local churches have that grace to speak. It's no secret around here that my heart, maybe because of where I was when Christ came into my life, my heart is to see more people come to know Jesus. That is first and foremost in my life because when he came to my life, it just changed everything. 
everything. That is the grace that has been poured out in my life. And so anytime I get to speak anywhere or talk to someone, that is what's going to come out of me because it's the grace that God has poured into me. Are there other things and other areas of grace? Absolutely. But it's that grace that pepper or salts everything I say and it's the first thing on my mind when I look at someone who needs to experience the grace of God. It's what grace has been poured out on me because that's what I speak. The grace that has been given to me. Your second fill in here in the third verse. We do this and we speak and we operate in humility. It is with humility. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, <laughs> but rather with sober judgment. Oh, here's, a, here's a literal take on this verse, okay? Do not overthink above what you ought to think. But think in wise thinking ways. Did you get that? Do not overthink. Don't think more above what you ought to think. But think in wise thinking ways. Paul was definitely a thinker. More than a feeler. And so he challenges the local church in Rome. He says, look, think, think, think. Don't react, don't react. Uh, it doesn't say feel. He doesn't say do not feel about yourself more highly than you ought. But rather with sober judgment. I mean, a lot of times we feel our way through life, don't we? I mean, if I feel this way, oh, I just don't feel it, brother. No, I don't feel it, you know. I don't feel. I didn't feel like I should do this. Instead of thinking through sober judgment. Thinking through things logically with God's help. And uh, Paul is telling this church, listen, think through with sober judgment what God has done in your life and make some wise decisions after you think through that. I don't know how many times I, I hear, you know, well, I feel like I need to do this or I, I feel like, uh, I, feel like I'm, I don't feel connected. This is a, here's, a, here's a good one that pastors have heard in church. I don't feel connected. Well, what do you think you should do about that? Maybe you should get connected. I don't feel connected. I feel, I feel like I'm being led away from the local church. Really? What do you think you should do about it when there are challenges? You know, we just uh, lost a wonderful lady. She wasn't a part of our church. Well, she was. Uh, Miss Clara Damian, 88 years old. Bob, one of our worship leaders and one of our most faithful members here for the whole 16 years this church has been around. His mom just died last week. And uh, Miss Clara was a member of her church for 30 years. And the church that she was a part of is an awesome church, but it has been through some tough times. But you know what Miss Clara's done? She stuck it out every single year for over 30 years and prayed through every single situation that it happened to come upon. She has a testimony of faithfulness, loyalty, and thinking things out and then going to prayer with it. Instead of going, oh, it's getting tough around here. Time to bail. <laughs> you know, I think I'll bail out of here. It's no, what do I think I should do to help the situation? So she went to prayer and she prayed for her church. I don't feel like the church has anything to offer me. What do you think you should do about it? What do you think? Maybe you should offer it something so that it has more to offer. The beloved community 
is torn down when we all feel our way through these things. Do you see that? We think, this is a crucial mission. You know, Jesus, when he first started talking about this thing called the church, he said, what did he tell Peter? I will build my church, right? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I don't think if the devil can't prevail against it, I don't think any bad leadership can prevail against it. I don't think any bad decisions can prevail against it. I don't think anything can prevail against it. And until it becomes a part of the local church, until we bring it right down to where we live it out, it's all just fantasy. It has to be worked out on the ground together. And the local church is how God does that. And yes, it's hard work. And yes, it takes. Miss Clara probably wanted to bail out a hundred times or more. But she stuck it out in prayer and she stuck it out in giving and loving and praying for her leaders through all the changes. Earlier in Romans 12 too, Paul says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The beloved community is built up as we learn to think differently. Now, how do we think wrongly? Well, let me just give you a few examples here. There's a term that's used many times, codependent. You guys know what the word codependency means? Yeah, I can, I'm going to tell you a personal story in just a minute. <laughs> codependency is when we feel like it's our job to rescue people, to make excuses for people, to never let people be responsible for their own actions. We see this sometimes in marriages. We see it with children. Uh, you know, we'll see it on church, in churches sometimes with uh, leadership and people codependent and, uh, you know, you give excuses for that loved one. You, you never want to see them exposed and so you do everything you can to cover up whatever struggles or sins that might be in their life. Uh, years and years and years ago, I had a family member who was going through therapy and uh, for some substance issues and so they needed somebody to come in and sit in the family therapy circle with them. And so uh, nobody else would do it. So I said, I'll do it. And so, you know, this is a long time ago, but, you know, I went in a bit naive. And so I'm sitting in this, I'm sitting in this therapy circle, you know, with all these people. And I'm a pastor, right? I mean, I'm a young pastor then, but I'm a pastor. And I'm sitting in this circle, and the psychologist is going around the room, and he's asking what everybody does for a living. And, you know, I'm thinking, I'm a pastor, you know. I'm good, <laughs> And, uh, and so I was like, yeah, I'm a pastor. And so he stops, and he looks at me, he goes, really? And then he gives me these statistics. You know what pastors are? They're the most codependent people on the face of the planet. <laughs> you know, they love to rescue people. They love to be like the Messiah. They love to be able to be loved by people and think, you know, put up there. And, just, and I'm getting madder by the minute. You know, I'm like, I'm not thinking my way through this. I'm feeling my way through <laughs> you know, And I'm like, what are you talking about, man? That's not me. And uh, he's like, but you know, there's hope for you. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. I came in here for this dude, not me. Why have you got, what are you doing talking about me? But I left there, really, it was a gift to me. It really was a gift. And I left from there, and I, I went to prayer, you know, I was studied, I read, and I, I was like, okay, God, you know, I want to be healthy. You know, I want to be a, I want to be a healthy pastor. And I don't want to think any high, more highly of myself than I should. Is rescuing someone like the fact that I was even there was in some ways a voice to him was there to rescue this guy do I could the rescue him and this got confirmed not too many weeks later when 
I had been on the phone for, this is when I was a young pastor, I had been on the phone for probably three hours with somebody, begging and pleading with them to not bail out on Jesus. And they were just talking bad about about church, about God's not there for me, doesn't come through for me, and I'm, don't do it. You know, you can make it. I'll meet with you every week for two hours, and we'll pray together. Don't bail out. So the next day I go into the church, and uh, I tell the senior pastor of this church, I tell him what's going on, and he turns and looks at me and goes, who do you think you are, Jesus? <laughs> Man. And then the, you know, the therapist words come back to me and I go I guess I do think I'm Jesus I guess I am thinking a little more highly of myself than I am because I can't save anybody I can't rescue anybody now you want to know the end of the story this is funny I don't know if I should tell you (laughs) next time this person called I said if I was you I'd quit going to church walk away from Jesus, just say this stuff doesn't work. The phone went dead. (laughs) Just silent as can be. And they go, what? (laughs) I said, man, if that's the way it is for you, I wouldn't believe it either. You know, it doesn't work. And I just shut up. That person has been in ministry now for the last 25 years. And I'm talking major ministry, leading tens of thousands of children into the presence of God working with kids all over the world we can't think more highly of ourselves than we should it's with humility that the beloved community of God comes together but there is power in humility there's power in that other ways we do this is we you know leaders leaders can refuse to take input from others because we think we got all the answers I mean, we can think, hey, you know what? God elevated me here. I got all the answers. Who who do they think they are telling me this? I'm not going to take this input from them. I mean, it's me. And so that's thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. And then you say, well, Tim, how about me? I got like low self-esteem. I'm definitely not like that because, you know, I I just think I'm stupid. I I can't do anything well. Nothing well. What about me? What about me? I always thought it was kind of funny when we... When we feel like that and we share that with other people, what if somebody said, yeah, you sure are stupid? I mean, I was like, would that really help? I don't think so. But, um, but I always wonder, you know, if somebody came along. When we get in those places where we really say, I, I can't do anything, you know, I have nothing to offer, none of that. Uh, my mind went back uh, thinking about this to Exodus 4 whenever God was talking to Moses. Do you remember when he drafted Moses? He goes to Moses and he basically says, you know, hey, Moses, I want you, I want to use you to get all the children of Israel out of Egypt. I want you to take them across the desert and take them into the promised land. Now, it's going to be tough. Pharaoh's going to reject you, but you're the man. I want to use you. And what does Moses say? Anybody remember? You saw the movie? What? What's that? I can't speak. I'm slow of speech. God. Some think he stuttered. Some think he just, his vocabulary was very limited, they think, or whatever. But, you know, now that's, oh, God, I'm stupid. I can't do anything. Who am I? I can't do anything. And how does God respond to him? Does anybody remember that? What did it, his response wasn't, oh, 
you're awesome. Moses, don't you understand how great you are? Let me build up your self-esteem. Let me just tell you how great you are and wonderful you are. That's not the way God responded. He responded with, who made your mouth? Because the emphasis is not on how great we are, it's on how great God is. Who made your mouth, Moses? I've asked you to do this. Who made it? Who made the mouth? Who has the power to make death and to make someone be able to speak, to hear, to not hear, to see, to be blind? Who is it? In other words, God's remedy for that type of thinking is not how great we are, but how great He is. And how he invites us into his beloved community to do amazing things for him that only he can do through us. He made your mouth. He made your eyes, your ears. He is able to give words. He is able to use you to whatever extent he desires to do according to his power, not ours. So it's not about how great we are and how much potential we have and how much gifting we have. It's about who he is. A.W. Tozer said, and he said this many, many years ago, the heaviest obligation lying on the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concepts of God until it is more worthy of him. And Arthur Pink, this is another quote written many years ago, The great mistake made by most of the Lord's people is hoping to discover in themselves what is found in Christ alone. In Christ alone. When we think of how great Christ is and the Holy Spirit, then we begin to have community building thinking. When we look at each other in the midst of maybe coming up short at times, but we know that God is able, God created your mouth, created your ears, your eyes, your hands, your affections. He's able to do amazing things because of who he is, not because of who we are. And that's that humility that a church, a beloved community that God wants to use must have at its heart. That it's not its gifted people. It's its gracious God that does the work. It's the gospel. I wouldn't be standing up here right now. I wouldn't be, the last 35 years of our life has not been what I expected. I was going to be an engineer, take my dad's business over, went to school for engineering, took, you know, started working with my dad, was a general contractor, building some of these hotels up and down the beach. I was going to take his business over, make a lot of money. Woo! That one went first. And, uh, you know, it was going to be big. And then Jesus showed up. Then Jesus showed up. But the gospel is so powerful. And the good news has such an import to it that you cannot not tell it. God will put the words in your mouth. And he will put the power of the good news in your mouth and heart so you can share it. It is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is not me, not you, not your abilities. But the gospel is. The good news has its own power right in the message. Some of you feel it right now. You sense it. You know it. The Holy Spirit is pulling you, calling you the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for you, that he came for you. You know it. You sense that there's power in the good news. And he's calling you and pulling you and drafting you today. Third one, it is by faith in this beloved community that we act. It is by faith. 
in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. You don't have to operate in the gift or the level of faith that another person does. All you have to do is operate in the measure of faith that God has given you. And when we all come together and do it together, there is enough faith to accomplish everything God has called us to. You don't have to have the faith to get up here and preach this message. You don't have to have the faith to lead this church from a senior leadership point of uh, place. You just have to find your place and in faith use what God has given you. And we all go together. We all go together in it. There are lots of things going on around in this church that I don't have the faith that for that area. But other people here do. And great things are going on. Every member has a measure of faith, and that's what we operate in. And you know, faith, some of you know the definition of faith out of Hebrews 11.1, 1, right? You know what it is. I mean, you say, well, I just haven't seen it in the local church, man. It's like, church sucks. You know, I'm half fed up with here. Well, listen, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Okay, we haven't seen it, but we're hoping for it. So we're going to move in faith, right? And that's what the church does. The local church says, I see something. I haven't experienced it yet, but I see it. And so we're moving toward it. And as we move toward it, we begin to see it. It comes into reality. We work in a measure of faith that we have. Romans 12, 4 through 5 says, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body. We who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now, Remember the old story? You guys remember? Am I the only one old enough to remember this thing? Here's the church, right? Here's the steeple. Open the doors and... What a lie. I mean, really. You know, I mean, it's not... It's, it's just not right. It's not right. Because that is, that is not the church. That is not the church. That is the church. That is the church. Right? And we need to realize that. But you know what? Some of us would say, oh, well, I belong to the universal church. That means dip. That doesn't mean anything, okay? That is about as unrealistic and inapplicable as you'll ever get. There is no way. That means nothing until you get rubbing up against each other and it starts happening. That's where the power of the church is, right there. And that's where the rub is, right? What Proverbs says, so as iron sharpens iron, so one brother and sister sharpen another. It's getting hot in here. I want to escape. Let me out of this church. Ah! And then you just get sharper and sharper and sharper, and the church gets better at what it does. The church is not that. The church is like a body standing in front of a mirror. If you want a metaphor, this is the one that Paul used over and over again. It's a body standing in front with various members. Church, the local church, and I mean the local church. The local church is not like a surf club. It's not like the Rotary Club. It's not like a football team where one member leaves and we think, well, just another one will come. And no, the body hurts when a body part is chopped off. Now, sometimes there has to be amputations in order for something to heal. That does happen. But the church is not like a club. The church is a body. Your last fill-in is that it is for the beloved community. It is for the beloved community. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ 
We, though many, form one body. It is for the local community. All of you guys are in this room for one another, for the beloved community. And we need each other. Three years ago, I was uh, surfing down at the, where we're going to have the baptism today. And uh, I had ridden a wave in and walked, rode it right up to the beach, kicked out. And it was a relatively calm day. It's a small surf, and which is not unusual in Myrtle Beach. Small surf, but it was rideable. And I got out of the water, picked my board up, and I was walking out. And I heard this, uh, in, in Spanish, I heard this lady screaming. And she pointed out in the ocean. And I couldn't, I couldn't understand her really well. But I looked out, and I saw this boogie board, one of these cheap boogie boards, just floating in the water. And I saw some fingers up above the water about like this, like that, going down. And I knew then she was, her son or family member was drowning, you know. And so I, I, I turned, I started to drop my board. I, I mean, I heard her cry. I turned, I saw him going under. I, I turned to, to run. I started to drop my board. And then something in thinking said, take your board with you. Keep it between you and him when you get there. Don't, you know, don't, or he'll pull you down too. Don't do it. So I grabbed my board, I got out to him, and he was down about that deep. And I leaned over the board and reached down and grabbed him and pulled him up on the, across the board. And uh, he spit all this salt water out. And I got him up to the beach and got him up on the beach. And, and uh, after he got the salt water out, he was, he was okay. And the family came over. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad that I heard her that day. But you know what? My ears wouldn't have been enough to save that boy. My eyes would not have been enough to save that boy. My arms would not have been enough to save that boy, and neither would my feet alone have been enough to save that boy. It took every part of my body to get over to where he was drowning so I could pull him up out of that water and get him to the beach. And it takes every part of our body to do what we are called to do. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.